Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. This is our final podcast of the year, ahead of the Christmas break. And a huge thank you to everyone who has listened throughout a tumultuous 2023. Lots more to come next year. On this week's show, we're going to be looking ahead to 2024 and the year of many, many elections, at least 40 in what you might call rock-solid democracies, at another 30, 35 in ones you might argue over the term, and that's before ones where an election may yet come, for example, Israel. So what is that going to mean to the many flashpoints in the world today? What is it going to mean to all kinds of negotiations? Are those going to get stuck? Well, we're going to discuss all that. Joining me in this studio, I've got a terrific cast. Gideon Rackman is the Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. Welcome. Hi. Hi, great to have you here. Leslie Vinjamori is the Director of our US and Americas Programme. Hi. Hi, great to be here. Really great to have you. And joining me as well is Ben Bland, the Director of our Asia-Pacific Programme. Ben, are we Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific? Hi, Bronwyn. Well, I, I tend to care less what we call ourselves and more what we do, but I will share, share a joke from someone in the British Army who said, the Indo-Pacific is not a region, it's two-thirds of the world, and you know that because regions produce their own cheese, uh, which I don't think we've seen Indo-Pacific cheese yet. <laughs> As jokes go, I'm, uh, look, I, I'm not even going to comment on that. Welcome. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Glad to have you. And finally, returning to the podcast this week, skipping over Ben's joke, is Armida van Rij, our new Senior Research Fellow for Europe here at Chatham House. Welcome. Thanks very much, Bronwyn. Great to have you. Well, look, let's start with this question of the year of elections and what it says about democracy. Gideon, is democracy in good health? Well, I suppose the fact that everybody, even those who aren't democracies, feel compelled to at least pretend to have elections tells you that uh, democracy as, as an aspiration uh, is in good health. I mean, people, you know, so I'm thinking particularly of Russia, will be having an election. Nobody doubts that Putin will win, but even there, you know, the question of turnout is going to matter. If Moscow and St. Petersburg boycott the election, that's kind of embarrassing for him. And we actually saw this recently with uh, the Hong Kong elections, where the Chinese were desperate to get the turnout up, even though the uh, the result was a foregone conclusion. But yeah, I mean, I think that it is an incredible year. But, that, but I, I would guess the three that I'm looking out for most, the two at the beginning and the end, the Taiwanese presidential election, simply because if the uh, pro-independence as the Beijing people would see it forces the DPP win, what will China's reaction be is a huge question. Then obviously the US election, I think, overshadows everything at the end of the year. And uh, everybody is already preparing for the prospect that Donald Trump might indeed return to the White House and what that means both for American stability and for America's global role. And in the middle, of course, the Indian election, well, I think it's pretty assumed that Modi will win. But if he does, and if he wins with a big mandate, uh, he will, you know, be, I guess he already is one of the world's most important figures, but he, his stature will rise, I think, in the world. We were doing a podcast on that just last week and came to, indeed, exactly that conclusion. Leslie, maybe you can pick up this question of Trump. Trump too, and the American election really hanging over the whole of this year. Is, is everyone in the world going to spend the year waiting for, to find out the result? It's interesting, and, and um, to what Gideon said, that everybody's preparing. I, I think it's right. Everybody is watching, and in that sense, maybe mentally preparing. But I think in terms of actual preparation, it's been quite shocking. Brahman, you said it yourself in your in your piece in the Financial Times. 
the world needs to think about it. The world needs to prepare. But I, I listened to a to a, a German expert this morning saying Germany is doing absolutely nothing. Um, so it is hovering. Uh, there has been a flurry of conversation about it. Really, it hit the it hit the front page of the press about two weeks ago. Everybody decided to start talking about Donald Trump. We all know he could come back. We all know the elections are very long way off. We all also know that it would be very consequential in foreign policy terms. This idea that there's a bipartisan consensus in U.S. foreign policy, I think, is vastly overstated. And there's nothing like the possibility of a return of Donald Trump to remind us that. Amida, what about NATO and Ukraine? Great question. Well, the big question is going to be, of course, looking ahead to the NATO summit in Washington, D.C. this time in June, so before the U.S. elections. But what will that summer deliver for Ukraine in terms of accession? Um, what, there, will there be an invitation to accession or not yet? And as one of the key security guarantees that NATO can give Ukraine, this is absolutely crucial. And if, for example, we have President Trump again and he says, I'm not so keen on NATO, Europeans ought to pay an awful lot more money. I'm not sure I want to pay much American money into this. It's Europe's problem to solve. What happens then? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's certainly one, um, I mean, whatever you may think of Trump, when he was initially elected, he certainly spurred Europeans on to do more on defence. But it also, to some extent, killed the strategic autonomy discussion because there's always this question of, without US leadership, what can Europe do? For NATO... There's a, there's a huge overlap between EU and NATO membership. Um, for NATO, I think a lot of European partners in Canada will be very concerned about a Trump re-election and it will have a serious impact on the NATO's deterrent capabilities towards Russia because we just know that Trump tends to be pro-Putin at least. Certainly judging by what he said in his first round as president, um, it is obviously hard to extrapolate what Trump might think from what he said before. But going on that, Ben, this framing that Gideon suggested of Taiwan at the beginning, the US election at the end, is that what is shaping your year as you look ahead? I think both are very important, although I may be a bit more optimistic than Gideon about the prospects for Taiwan in the in the short term. I think if, it's true that if the, the frontrunner Lai Ching-de, who's the candidate for the ruling DPP, wins, China won't be very happy. Um, but I think pressure is coming on Taiwan either way. If if he doesn't win, the pressure will maybe be pressure for you know the current opposition to enter some sort of talks. Um, I think if if the DPP and Lai Ching-de win, um, then it's going to be more military exercises. But I don't think it will necessarily lead to a dramatic escalation of tensions, not least because of the uncertainty around Trump and the US. So I think China, Beijing won't want to to inflame the situation too much uh, with more uncertainty coming out of the US. And to be honest. Whatever the bipartisan consensus there is or isn't, it's unlikely any candidate in the U.S. election is going to be bidding for a softer China policy um, unless uh, Leslie disagrees. And what about two mm -hmm. huge elections that fall in your patch? Indonesia, the largest Muslim democracy in the world. India, the largest democracy, as it calls itself, in the world. What do you expect from them? Well, one thing I would say is that actually, in a sense, I have more faith that there'll be trust in the outcome of those elections than the U.S. election which is saying something of, of the world's three biggest democracies all going to the polls in one year. As Gideon said, I think Modi is expected to win. Indonesia is really interesting because we will have a new president. Um, Joko Widodo, who's been in, in power for coming up to a decade, has to step down. He's reached the constitutional two-term limit. And there's some, some interesting characters running for election. But just the process of, of running elections in Indonesia and in India is fascinating. Huge countries... Uh, it's a huge logistical challenge. And the fact that I think they're likely to have processes that are 
are trusted by their voters is impressive. I mean, in Indonesia alone, it's all done in, in one day uh, on February the 14th, Valentine's Day, and there's 6 million election workers in Indonesia running the election. So the same population as Denmark, Singapore or Paraguay um, just running the election. So I think that's quite a feat. And that does speak to something that Gideon was saying, that you know elections matter to people and governments are spending a lot of money to try and get the results right, which I think does tell us something at a time when there's a lot of concern about democracy. So Gideon, just going back to your first point about the comparative health of democracy and what Ben was just describing does indeed sound very positive. Do you think we should trust the results in the way that we used to? I'm thinking of all the reports of countries like Russia trying to interfere with each other's elections. Well, I mean, I think that that raises two questions. There's a bunch of countries where you have traditional problems of election trust, which is, you know, have the ballot boxes been staffed, have votes been counted properly? You know, the classic place where somebody is elected with 95% or 99% of the, the vote. And there are still elections that fall into that kind of category, you know, Belarus. And I, you know, as I said, I think Russia's a foregone conclusion, whether there's actual rigging or whether it's just that they take out all potential real opponents, such as Navalny, well before they ever get onto the ballot paper. So that's one set of elections. But then I think there's a whole nother set of election integrity concerns around intervention in elections by malign actors, perhaps foreign powers. Now, Trump is fond of talking about the Russia hoax, the idea that Russia had intervened in the 2016 election. And it is true that the long investigation into that was a damp squib in the end when it reported. But there was no doubt that Russia in particular, but other actors were trying, perhaps you know, only at the margins, but they were trying to influence the dialogue in America through troll farms based in St. Petersburg, pumping out false information. And now we're in an election cycle where social media and artificial intelligence in particular have moved on. And I think that people are very concerned that they are having a very unpredictable effect on democratic debate and leaving it wide open to manipulation. And so I think particularly the role of AI and AI-generated themes and the way they might take off on social media and the way they might be manipulated by Russia. And actually, people are watching particularly China because of the importance of TikTok, which now, you know, a huge number of young people in America get their information from TikTok primarily, which is owned by China. How will that play out is also something people are beginning to watch. Leslie, the US identifies itself as being about democracy, having that built into its constitution, its founding values. And yet President Trump, coming back to him, denied the result of the last election, which gave Joe Biden the presidency, uh, says the whole system isn't working, though intends to run again. How healthy is American democracy at the moment? Well, clearly, there are many things that have contributed to the fraying of parts of the U.S. democracy. And it, it, as we all know, democracy is about much more than, than the elections. But that's a key point as you make it, that more than 70 percent of Republicans believe that there was a problem in the result of the 2020 elections. But if you break that down, they have a very different view of what went wrong, whether the result was just fundamentally wrong or whether the process was flawed because there was more uh, mail-in ballots because the voting went on for longer. So it's a, you know, it's a, when you start to really break it down, it's not quite as bad as it looks. But there is a, you know, there is a question going forward. I mean, at one point on, I think Gideon's really important intervention, 
the, the problem of disinformation, of course, we're worried about Russia. Of course, we're worried about China. But there's a domestic disinformation problem. And there's a domestic effort by many malign actors to influence the quality of information and the integrity of the conversation surrounding the election. So that, in some ways, is a greater threat to democracy when it's coming from within rather than than from without. You're really in trouble because then you've got to do things like fix your educational system, fix your media environment. One of the things that we'll be all, all be watching if Trump were to be reelected would be a civilian control over the military. Absolutely core part of democracy. Trump has said that he will resurrect the Insurrection Act if he is voted back into office. That is a really critical question that people became much more concerned about during the four years of Trump's presidency, whether that independence and that sort of uh, whether people in the Pentagon were, you know, stepping beyond the line of civilian control because they didn't trust the president. So there are a lot of components of democracy that I think we are all worried about. Clearly, you know, the one that rises right to the top is whether or not there will be a peaceful transition of power on January 20th at midday 2025. But despite what Trump says, he actually in the end did respect the result of the U.S. election. Well, by ha- definition of not being in the White House. <laughs> I guess that's true, that we have the whole spring, at least, of the court cases against him, some of which uh, deal with exactly that point. We've got all that to come, whether or not that helps him in the polls or or hurts him, we've yet to see. Let's just move on for a second to the economic backdrop of all this, because it has been a very difficult economic climate. There has been a lot of inflation, as we all know, a lot of uncertainty. And this can make it much harder for democratic governments. I'm thinking of the, one of the country we are sitting in, of the UK, the government led by Rishi Sunak wrestling to try and make people feel better about their lives against this backdrop. Amida, what does it look like in Europe? In this, terms of? This, this question of whether uh, the tough economy is going to dislodge more leaders from power than might otherwise mm. be the case. Yes. So in... <laughs> What we're really seeing in Europe is, and similar issues that come to the fore as in the UK, people are unhappy about um, a lot of domestic issues. Foreign policy never plays a big role in in elections. So housing, healthcare, uh, migration keeps coming up. What we've seen, we've had some surprising election results, um, both in Poland, uh, back to Gideon's initial point, but also in the Netherlands, where Prime Minister Rutte stepped down after a very long term. Um, his party, the VVD, let the polls until very recently before the election. And then suddenly the Freedom Party of Geert Wilders took over in the polls and became the party that won the largest number of seats in Parliament. That is one such example where someone who up until really quite recently, was considered a French party and completely unelectable by the electorate. They have now turned to him and made him the party with the most number of seats in parliament. That is a radical shift, and I really can't underscore that enough. This also points, in my view, certainly, to a bigger shift towards the far right in Europe more generally. We've seen Georgia Maloney in Italy. Uh, we've seen Slovakia's election results. And there are outliers, again, Poland being one of them. But there is certainly a shift happening. And this may well be a trend that continues um, in the European parliamentary elections, which we haven't talked about yet, but which are also happening in June 2024. Gideon, what should we make of the ability of democracies to solve their own problems? I mean, this is one of the challenges to the whole system of democracy. And you hear countries uh, which are not democracies, don't claim to be, don't aspire to be, being increasingly eloquent about that. I'm thinking of senior Chinese officials saying things like, if you haven't got a system, a political system that can make 
long-term sacrifices for the good of the country, um, then you don't have a political system that's going to last. And we've seen all this populism uh, in, in, in Europe and other places. Do you think democracy still can make that case for being a good way of organizing relations between people and solving the problems the country might have? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it definitely can. But I mean, I think that the argument that you say the Chinese make, which they certainly do, it's actually quite a familiar argument. I mean, you know, I, I would imagine back in the 1930s. Uh, it feels like in some of these conversations with them, simply like yeah, so, like saying, saying hello. <laughs> and that, 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 that's the throat clearing at the beginning. But 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 yeah. nonetheless, sorry, I've forestalled your answer. Yeah, but I mean, look, look, look how decadent uh, these people would have made arguments about how decadent democracy was in the 1930s and that the Soviet Union was good at forward planning and, and so on. And I think actually China's on slightly weaker ground. To, obviously, they've had an incredible period of economic success, which allowed them to speak up, you know, about the Chinese dream and, and so on. But actually, she's made a number of mistakes, in particularly in the handling of the pandemic uh, and the very chaotic, first, the sort of over-enthusiastic lockdowns and the chaotic emergence from that, but problems in the economy, problems in international relations. So it's, 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 you can't really, I think, make the case anymore that even China's a fantastic model of good governance and it clearly has problems and that you can't, you know, if she is getting things badly wrong, you know, the obvious repost is, well, who challenges him? How do you change that? So I don't think that argument is particularly stacks up. But I think the earlier point you made about democracies needing to demonstrate that they can deal with big problems that worry people, that's always been true. But I think there's a particular edge to it now in the West around migration. And there's a similarity in the European and the US debate where politicians are under huge pressure to stem particularly flows of illegal migration, either across the US southern border or across the Mediterranean, or in Britain's case, across the Channel. And everything they try seems to fail, and they make empty promises saying they'll do it, and then it doesn't happen. And that does make them look impotent, and it does allow for kind of strongman characters like Donald Trump to show up and say, you know what, democratic politics is failing, and you need somebody like me who will do the big, simple, perhaps brutal thing that needs to be done. Trump says, build a wall. Uh, you know, actually, Viktor Orban, who is emerging as the sort of primary spokesman for what he calls illiberal democracy in Europe, is also a big builder of walls. And I think believes that, you know, he's beginning to win the argument within Europe. Actually, he didn't, uh, you know, Poland went the wrong way as far as Orban was concerned, but then he got some in encouragement from the Dutch elections that we just refer heard referred to. And I do think that's, you know, it's a huge and difficult problem for democracies. I don't yet see them coming up with ways that they feel they can, dealing with illegal migration, that they feel both satisfy the electorate, but also be squareable with their international legal commitments and their view of themselves as places that respect individual rights and human freedom. So it's it's a really tough one. You know, just to pick up on this, absolutely. I mean, this is this has been a thorn, not even in the side, you know, sort of in the gut of the U.S. administration. Immigration reform has been impossible to get through Congress um, since long before um, uh, Joe Biden was president. Biden's approach um, has been to try and uh, increase the legal pathways for migration and then to take a much stricter approach towards illegal migration. That's really hard. To, it's very, very smart policy. It's very hard to implement. He's made some progress. The problem is 
that, A, the numbers are very high at the southern border. It is a genuine problem. Democrats recognize it. Mayors and governors recognize it in democratic states. They're asking for assistance. And it's obviously a huge political problem. It's something that the Republicans, and especially those eight Republicans on the far right of the party who have, you know, are well-positioned in the House, have made this a huge issue. They're linking the demand for assistance on securing the southern border to the request that that Congress and especially the Democrats have to support Ukraine. You hear it very, very explicitly. They say solve the southern border and and, and then we'll talk about then we'll talk about Ukraine. And 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 then they pitch it as a president who doesn't care enough about America. Why does he care about this country, you know, so far away from Americans? So the migration issue is going to play very loudly, vocally and, and, you know, front page and center throughout the electoral the next many months before, certainly in the case of the U.S., before they go to the poll. And just to, to build on that, certainly in Europe, migration is one of Europe's kind of weak underbelly issues, um, not the, but one of them. And it is also the area, because it is so politically sensitive, that is then exploited by Russia um, and other malign actors to, through disinformation, misinformation, disinformation campaigns, but also other hybrid warfare tactics to try and divide unity, to try and undermine our democracies. Um, so this is this plays into a bigger picture and a bigger geopolitical challenge that we face as well. Ben, what do you make of all this, uh, this discussion, which from other countries can sound like a very Atlantic, European conversation about democracies and, and migration? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's not really the, ma- the main issue in most of the places I'm looking at. But I, but I think there's, there's an interesting question about you know, elections and performance and other factors. Because I think for post-colonial countries in, in Asia, elections are, of course, still about performance. Indians want Modi to deliver economic benefits. Taiwanese voters are concerned about you know, food price and food inflation, just like others. But I think for, for young countries that have emerged from colonialism and, and conflict, actually just having elections that are genuinely contested is a way to keep you know, these huge swirling nations like India and Indonesia together when you have you know, so many different languages, different ethnic groups. It's a way to actually keep kind of the imagined ideas of these huge countries created out of the ashes of empire together. So I think there is something there that goes beyond um, mere performance questions. But I think ultimately those questions are, are really important too in, in, in elections everywhere. And I think like Armida said, in most places in the end, it is, you know, it's not foreign policy that drives votes. Taiwan may be being the exception somewhat um, to the rule. I like the way you put it about the, the, the very holding of elections being a way to hold these countries together imaginatively. How do you rate the Pakistani elections probably by, uh, due by February? Well, I think, yeah, that, that's probably a case where it will be hard to argue that it's truly an exercise in holding the country together and uniting fractious parts of the country, but rather likely to be quite heavily manipulated. It has arguably done that for all the uh, ebbing and flowing of power between the military and, and the um, various prime ministers who have, who have come in uh, and clung to power. The country does still take its election seriously. Yeah, I think it will come down to who is allowed to stand, right? And who that, that's a key question. Because I think if, if you have elections where people can vote freely, but not for the candidates they want um, due to law, you know, lawsuits and, and imprisonments and, and um, candidates being blocked, then, you know, I think it ceases to be an exercise in, in sort of representing the nation coming together. Um, but yeah, I think generally it, it does it does matter to people um, when they're, they're building their nation. I think 
Taiwan, the other thing I'd say, is also a really good case of a place that has transitioned away from authoritarian rule uh, towards democracy that has been quite a success story. And yeah, having these elections can play, play an important role in that. Gideon, I mean, what about some of the, just finally, what about some of the world's flashpoints and whether elections are going to affect those? I'm thinking both of Ukraine and indeed Israel, Hamas. So the world's flashpoints, well, I mean, I think that both are of considerable concern to Western governments, you know, as we end the year and go into the next year, that Ukraine at the beginning of 2023, there was a sort of optimistic scenario that, um, Ukrainians would have a counteroffensive, much trailed, perhaps overtrailed, because it allowed the Russians to prepare uh, rather too well for what was about to hit them. And the Ukrainians have not made great progress in 2023. And we end the year with big questions about how long the West will be willing to finance them for. And even if we manage to, as they say, you know, keep Ukraine in the fight, the problem is that the longer the fight goes on, the more one would expect Russia's advantage in terms of the size of its economy, the size of its population, its greater determination compared to the West, that that will begin to to weigh more heavily. So that's a concern. And then, of course, towards the end of the year, the issue that the US had almost written off the whole Western world, not, uh, you know, it felt that was the one bit of the world that was looking a bit more peaceful in the Middle East blew up. And we go into the next year, maybe hoping that the actual fighting in Gaza could wind down a little bit in January, but with no real certainty about any of the fundamental issues. Who will govern Gaza? Can we get a peace process going? Is there still a danger of a wider war? What is the impact of the Middle Eastern war on our own communities? Which I think is certainly something that Western politicians are thinking about a lot. And their relationship with the global South, because all the arguments that the West was trying to make about Ukraine and this being a unique aberration and we really needed to enforce the rules are, at least in the eyes of the global South, undermined by the failure to put pressure on Israel to stop killing civilians in so many numbers in Gaza. That cry of double standards does hang over all these conflicts and all these discussions. Do you assume that there's going to be an Israeli election? No, I don't assume anything because I think Netanyahu's a very tricky customer. He's, you know, the longest serving Israeli prime minister. He's very focused on the war, but also on his own political survival. And I think people assume that if you look at the opinion polls, that when that election happens, that is the end of Netanyahu. And Netanyahu knows that as well. So I think he might try to prevent there being elections. And unfortunately, that might involve having continuing to have some kind of state of emergency in Israel related to a war. I think on that almost tentative note, but it does count as a prediction, we will have to leave the rest to turn the corner of the year. And so end the show there. But of course, we're only beginning this discussion about what next year might bring and the possible consequences of so many elections. Indeed, how many there are going to be? Still unclear. I'll be exploring it further in my director's lecture on the 23rd of January, where I'll also set out possible solutions to some of the global problems we've been talking about, drawn from the extensive thinking and researching of my terrific colleagues. A big thank you to my colleagues who are here now, Leslie Vinjamuri, Armida Van Rai, Ben Bland, and of course Gideon Rackman online from the FT. Do follow them all on Twitter or X if it survives 2024. Uh, Usernames will be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe. Please do leave us a review. We'd love to know what you've made of this one and the year. 
and to read more from all our experts or to look ahead to next year's events. And we've got lots and lots in the diary already. Do visit chathamhouse.org where you can find all our work. And you've got just a few more days before Christmas to give the gift of a Chatham House membership to one of your friends or family. And seriously, we would love to have them and have you along to our events, to our receptions, to our discussions. You can find that offer in the show notes as well. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox, from all my colleagues, and happy holidays to you all.